Welcome to the show. My name is Kramer. This is the Kramer Says Podcast. It is Wednesday, September 14th, and my special guest today is Sergio de la Pena. Sergio is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the Department of Defense under the Trump administration. Sergio, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Tim. Appreciate being on the air with you. Well, everybody loved you so much last time that we had to have you come back, especially with some of the... Um, some of the things that happened over the last few weeks, um, when we met at CPAC, one of the things that you showed me was a graph that you had created um, about threats. Now, your job with the DOD, the Trump administration, was threat assessment. Kind of get into that and, and why you think that what we're seeing right now, we've got to take a closer look at it. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Uh, I, I want to start by uh, with a little bit of background on the concerns that I have and why I put the chart together. So I've been tracking communists since I was a kid, since I was in high school. And I grew up in the Cold War. I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. So I got to live all of those things. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, I grew up around Roswell, New Mexico. Now, the unique thing about Roswell, New Mexico is that we had Walker Air Force Base. It was a, a B-52 base. So I grew up around planes constantly in the air carrying nuclear weapons that used to fly up to patrol uh, the skies uh, in Canada waiting for a potential strike by the Soviets. So that was kind of sort of the environment that I grew up in. And then I started seeing uh, what was going on at the time when we first immigrated to the United States in 1961. And that was a Cuban um, conflict. I, I guess it was the success of Fidel Castro and the Russian and uh, in, in the Cuban revolution that was sponsored by the Russians. So I started getting into understanding what, what the Soviets were doing. And so I kept that in the back of my mind when I went into the army. Uh, I, I served as a second lieutenant in Germany in the 8th Infantry Division. And our general defense plan had us in the Fulda Gap. The Fulda Gap was the expected route of advance of the Soviet army into Central Europe. And we were confronted by no less than the 8th Combined Arms Army. I bring that, I bring that to your attention because the 8th Combined Arms Army is now in the southeast of Ukraine pushing right. forward. <laughs> and holding territory in Ukraine proper. So that, that unit has had a long history. So anyway, back in those days, I, you know, we were ready to confront the Soviets. And what I noticed was that the Soviets were very good at propaganda. They weren't quite so good at military operations. And we've now seen all that. But in 1980, I went into East Germany. I went into East Berlin. In those days, you could do that because by, by treaty obligations, they had to allow soldiers to be able to travel with permission into some of these places. And what I noticed was that I didn't think that Ivan, the Russians, were 10 feet tall and bulletproof. What right. I found out is that they were poorly trained, poorly equipped, and uh, their model didn't seem to work. But yet at the same time, we were assessing them as having all sorts of capabilities. That Capabilities in theory, I guess that works. But I never felt that they were quite up to the standards that we were being told. And so as I developed an understanding of how the communists operate, one of the things that they do very well is that they, they transition from one way of winning conflicts to another. What we found is that in the Cold War, they weren't very good at fighting in the field. They were very good at propaganda. And they were also very good at internal dynamics within a country. And they had a saying I picked this up from a Colombian a general who had talked to a guerrilla who told him that you either win by the bullet or by the ballot box. 
and then you transition back. If you can't win by the ballot box, you go back to the bullet. So it's kind of one of these things where you're in constant conflict because that's the nature of communism. Right. When you talk about the dialectic, it's basically two opposing thoughts, the stronger thought winning, generally the stronger thought by their standards right. are right. what the Soviets want. So that's the way that they operate. That's just to give you an idea of the mechanics. So I saw what happened in Germany. The Soviets never attacked. And then I went, uh, as, as I con continued in my career, I traveled to Latin America. And in those days, there were guerrilla movements in Latin America that were creating all sorts of conflict. And so it was our job to train battalion staffs on how to process information, how to manage their affairs in a way that was more efficient in fighting the bad guys. So that's why I did that for a while. Uh, I was in Peru when the Sendero Luminoso was running amok. Um, they killed 70,000 Peruvians in the process, but eventually the Peruvian military was able to defeat uh, the Sendero Luminoso. And there were other guerrilla movements that were operating at the time, in Colombia specifically, the FARC and the ELN. Uh, the, the, uh, those are two guerrilla movements that are, that are still alive and well in, in Colombia, not to the extent that they were back in those days. So we were very effective at helping the partner nations control their own insurgencies. Now, what they learned in the process was you do better if you affect change through the political process or to, through elections. So they would so, prefer to do that. They would prefer to do it through elections and correct. control that process than go to the kinetic action. Correct. So let's start with Venezuela. In the 1960s, Venezuela fought the guerrillas and defeated them. Mm -hmm. In the peace process, the Venezuelan government said, okay, look, uh, we'll allow you to play in the political process. And they did a pretty good job of playing the political process. They, they incorporated into some of the minor parties. This is now, this is late 60s, early 70s. Right. So that's going on in Venezuela. At the same time, uh, Fidel Castro advised the government of Chile uh, at that time under the elected official, the elected president of Salvador Allende back in 1970, and uh, he made a mess of the government. And in 1973, Augusto Pinochet, the, the uh, commander of the army, decided we're not going to go in the route of communism. So he executed a coup, which eventually ended up with Salvador Allende committing suicide. And then Pinochet took over the country right. uh, in a military coup for 15 years, which he had said, I'm going to do this for 15 years. We're going to do a plebiscite. And if you want me gone, I'll be gone. Um, and 14 and a half years later, plebiscite uh, takes place. Pinochet loses. He steps back. And Chile becomes the democracy that it is today. Now, what happened there was Fidel Castro is making calculations. He said, we didn't win by the bullet in Venezuela. Let's try the ballot box in Chile. They tried the ballot box. They pushed a little too hard. The reason Pinochet did the coup is because he was concerned that there would be a shadow army created right. that was going to be competing with the Chilean army. And he said, we're not, we're not going to let them do that. So what Fidel assessed out of that is, okay, we need to go a little slower with, with this transition. So he repeated that again in Venezuela, going further in my career. In 1996, I ended up assigned to Venezuela where I saw Hugo Chavez in, in campaign mode working at how he could get um, he could get himself elected. So do, to been, do with the ballot box what they couldn't do with the bullet. Correct. So they're back, right. So they're back. 
Now, now, first of all, Hugo should never have been a, a, a candidate because he had been part of a coup in 1992. He had, he had attempted a coup. He failed, again, coaching from, I don't know if he, at that time he was getting coaching from Fidel. I don't know that for a fact, but he definitely had ties with groups that would coach him on how to do certain things. They tried the coup in 92. He failed. He was arrested. He was put in jail. Two years later, he gets out. And then he, he's given an exoneration by the, the candidate that was elected president at the time that, that Chavez was running for political office. So he's basically clean. He can now run. Why was that? Why, why did they do that? Is, I mean, is it just corruption or is it ineptness? Or both. <laughs> no, it was it's it was a strange dynamic because in Venezuela at the time they had they had two parties, they had uh, Democratic Action and and another one called uh, Cope. It was an acronym, and I don't want to go into the length of the acronym, but it was right. it was basically the right and the left. It was uh, it equated to the Democrats and the Republicans, kind of sort of, where they had a power sharing agreement. The the presidential terms were basically one party would rule and the other one. There were two gentlemen that had had dual terms. At the time, one guy had done the dual terms. It was Carlos Andres Perez, the guy that was in, in office when, when Chavez executed his, his, his coup that failed. And then afterwards, the guy that was running for that office was jealous because he hadn't had a second term. And he, was, he, he looked at the guy who had won the two terms as somebody not qualified at the level that he was because this guy never went to college. Right. So this guy, Rafael Caldera was his name. Rafael Caldera was a, was a lawyer. He was one of the people involved in the democratic process that began in Venezuela in, um, in the late 50s. And he wanted his second turn at being president. One of the ways that he did it is he created a third party <clears throat> and he was able to convince people that he was the right guy, <clears throat> and the way that he convinced them was that, <clears throat> excuse me, he told them that it was his, um, he thought that they had been heavy-handed with Chavez, and that maybe Chavez had a reason for committing the coup, and maybe uh, we we need to at least <laughs> analyze ourselves, let's do some, some navel game. Turn the and, other cheek. And, but... and turn the other cheek, and let's let this guy, let, let's, let's just let him out of, out of, out of jail and, of. <laughs> and let's exonerate him because Chavez had popular support. So, right. so Chavez was, was very good on the stump. He's a good populist and he had a lot of popular support. So what that does is it, it, it makes the opening for him to run for office. He runs for office and then he wins. And immediately what he does right. is, well, first of all, that election was very clean. I was an observer at the primaries and I was an observer at the runoff. So really every, yeah. So Jimmy Carter was there. The, it, it had a lot of international observers. I went to the marginal parts of the city that typically you're not, you, you don't want to go into, right. but at the time of the election, the military was out providing security. That's all they did. And they, everybody came out to vote. Uh, everybody was in a situation where, where um, they felt safe. And so that, that election went off without a, without a, a, a hitch. As soon as Chavez gets in, the very first thing he does is he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to rewrite the Constitution. We're going to create a constituent assembly because it was about consolidating power. So what they try to do is figure out a mechanism to consolidate power. 
His was through the Constitutional Assembly. So the Constitutional Assembly is put together and then they have uh, election upon election upon election. This time there's no observers anymore. And these elections are, okay, first we're going to see how we change the constitution. Then we're going right. to see how we get other people elected. And in the process, he was able to do that. And he also bought the Smartmatic machines. Go figure. <laughs> so uh, about the same time that... that it's uh, guaranteed to win if you use those machines. <laughs> uh, well, it's, now to be fair, let's, let's, let's differentiate between Smartmatic Venezuela and then all the other stuff that came out of our elections, because at the, the Venezuelans bought the rights to the machines. They were able to buy the software and they changed the software. And in Venezuela, it is argued that uh, those machines were definitely those that you could manipulate. And Chavez did that to his advantage. Um, so so what I'm getting at is all of this stuff was going on in, in, in Venezuela. And what he was trying to do is how do I consolidate power? And his way was by creating in the new constitution something called the moral the, the moral pillar. Yeah. And this moral pillar uh, it was a new branch of government. So you had you had the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. He added the moral branch, and the moral branch was all the audit agencies consolidated into into this this one new governmental. Branch. Have we ever seen anything like this before in politics? I mean, is there any time in history that we've seen a a moral branch of government? Uh, not that I know of. I think during the French Revolution, perhaps. But what they're showing is that the, it doesn't really matter. The, the function of that was to consolidate power. Right. So you figure out a way that the executive branch was in charge of the moral branch. And the moral branch is what was what gave him the ability to consolidate his power. So he's got this power now that he starts making a lot of changes. But they become a lot more gradual. The lesson learned from what happened in Chile was not repeated in Venezuela. So the first thing he does is he starts, first of all, placating the poor. So you've got to create the conditions where you start dividing people. And the way that Chavez did it was it was all done based on social class. And yep. so and, and, and indigenous groups and all that. So you want to divide the population so that you have all these different segments. But all these segments. Well, it's the tribalism, right? It's, it's us and them. You've got Correct. to do that. Saul Alinsky says you've got to do it. The identity politics, that's how you get those people to hate those people. So you're the solution. Correct. And so so what we've been operating on is under the Alinsky rules. But in this case, you know, the, the Alinsky process of doing business is like socialism for dummies. And <laughs> <Right. he's> very, <laughs> he does it in such a way that's very easy to understand. If you read yeah. Marx, he, he goes off into all kinds of tangents yep. about the proletariat and all this other stuff. He's a lot more complicated to understand. But if you follow Saul Alinsky, he basically did socialism, communism for dummies. And so yep. Chavez did the same thing. So by consolidating power, he was able to do it over a period of time and election upon election. Uh, he also uh, he was consolidating more power. And in the process, he started nationalizing things. So one of the one of the biggest agencies that he was able to um, consolidate and, and nationalized was the oil industry. You had you had PDVSA, which was a huge, huge oil company, one of the best run in the world. Uh, when I was there, I think it was like, like, if I'm not mistaken, around 1998, it was considered one of the, it was the fifth best run oil companies in the world. Wow. So what he did was he doubled the number of employees by nationalizing them. 
and and then uh, at the same time their their efficiency dropped by 50% immediately of course because you had a lot of people that really weren't qualified to do what they were doing but you need you need to create jobs so he created a lot of jobs and he started giving away a lot of things like for example if you had land that wasn't uh, being used and you owned it you would allow squatters to move in and, and control that land. So what he did was basically give stuff to the poor and then nationalize industries, create jobs, even if you didn't have to do anything uh, for that job. And, and then the environmental standards and all that kind of stuff went out the window and efficiency went out the window. So, so what we're seeing today is the same exact tactics being utilized well, here, correct? What, what I'm seeing is something similar because mm -hmm. If you follow history and if you look at how people come to power in communist regimes, they follow a very similar pattern. And so this is the concern that I have. What I saw in Venezuela is I see some of those tendencies starting to occur here in the United States. Now, how did Chavez kick this thing off? His thing is we have a crisis in governance. We have a very corrupt system of government that needs to be revamped and modified. And so that was his thing. You've got to create the crisis, and that crisis, in, in the case of Chavez, was was poor governance. If you and, and his that, government at the time, though Sergio, his government at the time, it was corrupt, right? I mean, it was. Will you say it was more corrupt than our current government here in the U.S. or oh, yeah. equal? Or oh, okay, oh, so yeah. give an example of that. Why? Why would when he went forward and said that the, the government was corrupt and it had to be restructured? What level of cor corruption are we talking about? All the way to the presidency? Oh, well, the, the, the Venezuelan, but let me put it this way. The Venezuelan okay. government had problems with corruption, but no more than any other third world country. Now, you got to remember that Venezuela had a lot of money. Right. So corruption was, you know, it was tolerated because there was just so much money to go around. And so what Chavez made it sound like is that this is, this is Africa level corruption. And it really wasn't that bad. The one thing that he always talked about was how Carlos Andres Perez had taken money from, I believe he had, he had given money to Violeta Chamorro, the president of Nicaragua at the time, uh, something to the tune of several hundred thousand dollars. Nothing compared to the corruption that he generated that was an order of magnitude or more, billions, greater. Right. <laughs> so what you basically have is you can always make a case for any Latin American country having corruption that's unacceptable. And that was what he played up on, except that he made it sound a lot worse than it really was. Okay. Because when he came into office, he was significantly more corrupt. And so right. he used that as his excuse. He was able to, to campaign on that. And, and Venezuelans uh, were used to living the good life. I mean, uh, you had all sorts of, of services. You had great facilities. Uh, their, their transportation systems were, were great. You could travel just about anywhere inside Venezuela for next to nothing. The, they had uh, interstate, they had an interstate network, obviously it wasn't complete. And there's a lot of parts of Venezuela that weren't populated, but the parts that were, were interconnected very well. So it was not a, it, it was a very, let me put it this way. It was probably one of the, it wasn't probably, it was one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America. I would put right. in the top three at yeah. the time. Right. So so this is why he was able to make a case. And then when he started talking about giving people stuff, everybody, everybody said, yeah, <laughs> human nature kicks you know, in. <laughs> line me up for that. And then he also said, I'm not going to do anything to the big businesses. I'm a Democrat. 
he kept telling the embassy, we're all good to go. We're, we're you know, we, we believe in right. democracy. I'm not a socialist. I'm here to fight corruption. He went to Spain to talk to the dictator uh, that had been in office prior to the beginning of the democratic process. And he was a military guy. So they, everybody thought, okay, so Chavez is talking to, uh, you know, somebody on the, the way they play it is on the right, right end of the political spectrum. Right, right. Really what he was doing was putting on a show. The guy was old and decrepit and he was just, you know, he's kind of like toward the end of his life. And so Chavez came across as being somebody that could be, you know, he could walk across the aisle, if you will. And right. so he was, uh, he, he was very effective at the way that he conveyed those ideas. And there was plenty of money. So when you first start distributing things and the price of oil is up and everything is good, you've, you've got a very receptive audience. As things started falling apart years later, people start wondering, okay, what's going on? One of the things just to move, or, move, move a little quicker forward is he would go to meetings and people would say, hey, Mr. President, you know, I don't have a place to live and so forth. And he would point at a building and he says, who does that building belong to? And somebody would give an answer says, expropriate that. So expropriate means expropriate that. He would point a finger at a building and yep. says, okay, that was, that was direction to his people to go, okay, find out who owns it, find some crooked thing they've done, and take it away from them, and, and, and then just take over. Yep. They, and they did the same thing with big land holdings that were run efficiently. And he would say, okay, let's give this to the people. Well, people didn't want to go outside the city where they, were, they had to work and they had to, right. they had to do all the kinds of things that farmers do to be able to make land productive. So productive land became unproductive. And so as the more that he started expropriating, the more he started taking away private property, the more the country started going downhill. Well, the same thing we've seen happen here recently in South Africa. Uh, they are on verge of famine because the farms were taken over that were working. They were given to people who didn't have the qualifications to run the farm. And now they're on the verge of a famine, potentially in South Africa. So, And we saw the same thing happen in Venezuela. Venezuela, they, they ended up going after the zoo animals. They were so hungry at some point, at one point. That, that, that's true. That is all true. That, by the way, that was a great zoo. I used to run around that zoo. Um, and so it's the, the, the dynamics of how this occurs is the same. And I've, right. I've been in Africa. I've seen the really bad end of the spectrum. I've been in Liberia. I saw what that place was like when they destroyed everything yeah. after Charles Taylor and his civil war spread all over that neck of the woods. And, and, and in other countries, I've been in Ethiopia and Eritrea. I've been in parts of Africa where things just completely didn't work. Everything just completely fell apart. Venezuela was not at that point. Venezuela was 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 a notch above that. I've been to Haiti. I mean, Haiti is, right. is still a, ba yes. it's a basket yep. case, it, it, yep. and it continues to be. Th those are well, un almost ungovernable. When we first met at CPAC, you started talking about this graph that you'd created that kind of explains uh -huh. how we got here. And not just how we've gotten here in the U.S., but how this tactic, this this the system is used time and time again to, to break down the people and to get them compliant with what the government or those in power want to do. So let, let's right. talk about that. You you, uh, okay. you look at what's happening here in the U.S., that the economy, uh, the supply chain issue, the, the border crisis, everything that we're going through and all the so, attacks that we're under are by design. That's what you think. Let's let's talk about that. Well, I ask I ask people when they see this chart, I ask the question, is this by design? 
this is what I'm seeing. And so you have to come up with your own conclusions because this is just a framework for you to at least think of the problem. Question. And so the question. So at the far left of the chart, I talk about the fundamental transformation. President Obama talked about the fundamental transformation of the United States. He said that in October of 2008, right before uh, he, he, he won the election. And by so, the way, Sergio, I'm going to go ahead and um, for, for this one here, we generally just do an audio podcast. But for this one, because yeah. of the graph, I'm going to do a video. So I will go back in and pop this up on the screen so people can talk, see what you're talking about as you're going through it. OK, so so I've got, you know, let's, let's start with the fundamental transformation. By the way, that had been going on for a while. If you look back to the 60s, we've been under this transformation for a long time. A lot of these uh, agencies have been under the influence of this change that started back in the 60s during the, the counterculture revolution, all that kind of stuff. It's just that President Obama brought it along and said, hey, we need to execute this fundamental transformation of the United States. That's the, the gradual thing that I'll talk to you about in a minute. But first, you've got to go with the present. So what happened with COVID? That was a perfect opportunity to have a crisis because to create this fundamental transformation, you need a crisis. You need a crisis because you need to give the government more power to control things. And when you have something like COVID, it's a perfect opportunity to control a lot of different things. So you need this catalyst. And that, as soon as that catalyst kicks in, the first thing that you do is you start stoking the, ro the, the, the racial and the social divisions. So what happened under COVID? The, the pressure kept building. We were locked down. We were isolated. Uh, we didn't know what we were dealing with. And... So people start getting edgy. And what happens? We had the, the uh, George Floyd in incident where right. all of a sudden you have this, this explosion of anger based on, on social distinctions and racial distinctions especially. So as soon as that kicks in, you've got rioting in the streets. Now you can move uh, in a direction of controlling people or, or putting more restrictions on people. And so while that's going on, you look at the opportunity for how can, you, how can you take advantage of this? And one way is this is a perfect opportunity to use the COVID crisis to change electoral laws. Yeah. And look at what happened. We went from having an election day to an election season. Here in Virginia, we're about ready to go into congressional elections. They're going to be in November, along with everybody else, in about a week. We start voting. Yeah. So that was one of those changes that occurred. And then you also have lessened the requirements for signature verification, uh, identification verification. So what you what you do is you create the possibility of a lot more mischief with elections. So by lowering the threshold. Right. By lower the lower the yeah. threshold because of course you you've got to be concerned about the safety of people. And once it's once it's put into law. And oh, by the way, some of those laws were changed, I would argue, unconstitutionally. Well, that's what's been covered here in the next few weeks with the, the, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court goes back and looks at whether those changes were legal at the time. And if they're not, we've got some questions, more questions that need to be answered. Correct. Let's, let's just look at Pennsylvania. Yeah. The governor enacted laws and they were supported by the Supreme Court if you look at the Constitution, it's very clear and very plain. Yeah. It's only the state legislatures that can change electoral laws in the state. That didn't yeah. happen. So and then you had these extended counting sessions that went into and beyond Election Day. 
So you're, the, the United States that used to be the example for the rest of the world on how to hold fair and free elections has now lost that position because we can't determine who won an election until over, in the case of the last election, it was months after exactly. uh, the elections were held. So yep. these, these are the changes that took place under this, the, the, these crisis environments. And then also you take advantage of how can you make these changes permanent? You open the border. Uh, yep. To date, we have now 3 million additional people in the United States that got here illegally. And we're told that the border is secure. I don't <laughs> think so. I've been down to the border. It is not secure. <laughs> and, and so, now, so, so getting back to Venezuela, why do people do that? In the case of Venezuela, what Chavez did was, when, well, actually, this was under Maduro because Chavez is already gone. They said, okay, uh, what we're going to do is we're now going to issue citizenship to all these Colombians yep. uh, that have come into Venezuela because when th there's been a, an interesting dynamic in, in Venezuela and Colombia. When the FARC, the, the guerrilla movements right. were very strong, a lot, of, a lot of Colombians went to Venezuela. When those Colombians got there, they were, they were waiting to see when things would calm down in their country and they'd return. So what Chavez did is he says, I'm just going to make all you, Vene I'm going to make you all Venezuelan citizens. So he, he, he nationalized something to the effect of about 2 million people. Yep. And uh, does that put a thumb on the scale? A little bit. You know, well, you, well, you, we're you, seeing you be the same thing happen here, Sergio. I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing. Everybody sees it for what it is, is that when you've run under the ability to give free stuff to the people or make big promises to the people that you have in your country, when they've learned that you lie and you don't deliver, you have to go elsewhere and convince well, those I, people to come here. We'll give you stuff for free and, and then we'll make you a citizen and you can vote for us. That's That's it. We see for what it is. No, so, so I want to separate Venezuela from the U.S. So in the okay. case of Venezuela, they literally made them citizens. They gave them passports and said, okay, you're, you're, now, you're now a full-blown Venezuelan citizen. You can vote. In the United States, it's not that way. I, we, well, it's not, not that way now, but they want it that way. That's the way the left wants it. So I go back to <clears throat> the, the changes that we've had in electoral laws. If they stay that way, and if you're not verifying signatures, and you've, you have people organizing illegal aliens – to right. be able to, how to you, you teach them how to take advantage of a voting system that's not under scrutiny. And again, you got to be you you have to be a, a little cagey about this whole thing because we still have laws that say you can't vote if you're not eligible. Right. But it sure makes it a lot more. It makes it significantly easier for you to vote and not verify your signature, not verify your identity, and uh, and those well, it just kinds adds of chaos. It just adds chaos to the system. Right. And, and so and if they stay over time, the expectation is, well, we're the ones that let them in. So they're probably going to vote for us. Right. And so that's 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 one of those things that it's just it's an observation of mine. So the other thing that you do is you weaken public safety institutions. And what happened? You you had you had uh, the Floyd incident. You say, OK, well, the police were responsible for this. So let's let's defund the police. And you get those kind of movements kicking along. And what does that do to good law and order? All of this is designed to make people more docile or more, uh, more easy to manipulate. Because right. if all of a sudden the criminals have more rights than you do and the police are being vilified, the people that are most affected by this are those underserved communities that have high crime rates. Right. And by that, you have black communities, you have Hispanic communities, you have poor communities, really, because... 
you know, if you have a wealthy Hispanic community or wealthy black community, they're, they're not impacted. But if you are poor and you're a minority, the, those most affected are going to be in those communities. Well, a lot and of those so, communities, Sergio, to me at least, it looks, it reminds me of the wild, wild west, is that you've got this lawlessness there. And whoever has the courage to stand up and take power in that community is the one who runs that community. Correct. So those are the impacts. Now, how do you make these things happen? How do you how, how are you able to execute all of these changes that are taking place? You do that by a couple of ways. And there's well, I'm sure there's more than that. But let's just two big ones. One is you have subjective subjective executive actions. What that means is that through executive order, whoever the executive is <clears throat> can guide and direct certain things to be enforced and other things not to be enforced. Right. So if, if you're selectively enforcing certain things and in the executive branch, you have attorney generals that aren't going to prosecute certain things. And if you've got uh, the president saying, we're not going to, we're going to suspend this and we're going to, we're going to expand that you, you do things that are in your favor and you can move things much more quickly through executive orders that, that don't allow the scrutiny of the other branches of government. Well, would that, would that play into what's going on in Illinois here recently, where Cook County has now said that they're not going to prosecute second-degree murder? I mean, not prosecute. You get that on, you know, cashless bail. Right. It looks like they're trying to let the criminals back out into the streets, which is another tactic that Castro used on several that's occasions. That's correct. So if if you, if you well, this takes me to the other the other enforcing mechanism, and that is, You've got groups like BLM and, and Antifa. When the rioting was taking place, you put BLM out into the streets. That creates a mob. That creates a big group of people. And a lot. some of those people are peaceful, uh, but not all of them are. And right. then you, ins you insert into that big group groups like Antifa that are out there torching things and breaking things and destroying things. With a mission. They, they have an agenda. There's a reason why they're there. It's not to be a mostly peaceful protester. Correct. And they use that as the pretext to be able to protect each other. I, I once got a lecture from, from my good buddy, El Comandante Chavez, and he starts telling me, he says, you know, do you know about what Mao said about the gorilla and the people? He said, the, the people are like the water. And the gorilla is like that fish that survives within that water. What he was saying, basically, is you create this mass and then you put the troublemakers into that mass yeah. and then you're protected by the water. Yeah. So it, it's it's that dynamic that's taking place. And by the way, that took place in Chile in, in uh, 2019. It's taken place in Ecuador. It's taken place in Colombia and it's taken place in Bolivia. So all these countries follow a similar dynamic. That's why I'm looking at what we're living through today and I'm seeing a lot of the same dynamics. And what you want to do is get to the point where the government has greater control and the people are more docile and having to accept that government control. That happened. What I just described is those are the rapid changes that can take place to move toward that fundamental transformation. When you say rapid changes, what kind of timeline were we talking about with Venezuela? Cuba was fairly quick. Venezuela, Colombia, these other nations, are we seeing this timeline ramp up the, the, the more efficient they become at these tactics? Well, I mean, they, 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 they share lessons learned. The left is not exactly disconnected from, from itself. So in the case of Venezuela, what Chavez was trying to get at is let's change the constitution because I want to consolidate power. And the way he did it was 
you have the constituent assembly, you change the constitution, and then you, you adapt it so it's more easily manipulated by the executive branch. The same thing just happened in Chile without success a week ago last Sunday. They had a, they had a plebiscite. They had put together a constituent assembly after the 2019 riots. Everybody agreed, okay, we got to rewrite the constitution. It was written by Pinochet. That's bad. Right. So now let's, let's modify it and give every right to everybody. And guess what happened a week ago last Sunday? The people renounced the new constitution resoundingly. Why? Every single state in Chile, because all of a sudden the Chileans woke up. They elected a leftist communist uh, 35-year-old president who has lost popularity because he doesn't have the people that know how to govern. He put in uh, all sorts of cosmetic changes. Uh, for example, uh, the majority of his ministers are women. And that was by, this, you know, we right. want women. Yeah. wasn't so much based on qualifications. It was based on the, this is the thing that I'm going to, to pursue so he, the Constitution was really cited to, you know, focus on climate change. It was going to focus on indigenous <laughs> okay. rights. That's more understandable, go, right? And they, okay. and, yep. it, and it, and it bombed because all of a sudden people woke up and go like, "Wait a minute, we didn't, we didn't, we're not up for that." Right. Chile is one of the most successful countries economically in this hemisphere. So why would we want to change that? So now all of a sudden, you've got a president that's having to backpedal and is getting smacked with reality. He got elected. Uh, under a mandate of he was going to be the guy that brings people together where we had, where have we heard that before? Exactly. And so it, it failed. So getting back to the United States. So all of these changes that are taking place is you've got to do the rapid change. What, what is behind it? Well, you want to be able to give the executive the ability to control things. And what has happened in the United States now is we see that the executive is going after its political adversaries. Right. And you see that with the FBI. The same FBI that said that we are uh, we have Russia collusion, with the previous <laughs> candidate X, Y, and Z, yep. and now we're not going after my son. We're not going after other people that have done things like uh, Miss Clinton, who who had her fee her email servers in her house. Now you're going after a former president. Yep. So you're taking advantage of this crisis moment to see how much you can push through. And and, and why are you doing this? Well, we got the midterm elections coming up. Right. You've got to be able to impact those elections. So, again, this is how you, how do you manipulate the elections to put your best foot forward? So all of this stuff happens to drive elections. You've got to get the change done quickly and you want to be able to lock it down because what you want is you want a more docile public and you want to allow government to have greater control. Our country was designed and that. Now I go into the the gradual change. Let's start by who, who we are and what we have been um, historically historically yep. been under a constitutional republic. You know, we have uh, we have a constitutional republic. What we're moving toward now is more of an authoritarian state, and and you've got you to be able to do that. <clears throat> you have to affect. The major significant institutions that govern certain things. Let's let's like for so example. To go back, let me to remind the audience of what we're talking about here is that Sergio has created this graph, and this graph is looking at everything that's going on 
um, in the country today, here in the U.S., based on what's happened previously in other nations across the, the planet as they've gone more um, totalitarian. So he's got it broken down. We'll put it on the screen here later for those who are watching the video. Uh, but for those of you who that are, that are just listening, um, we're talking about this fundamental trans, trans, uh, transformation of the country. And Sergio's broken it down into the institutions affected and how they're affected or how they're operated differently between being a constitutional republic and an authoritarian state. So the first in institution that we saw attacked during the COVID crisis was religion. Talk about that. Okay, so let's, let's, let's just... Let, let me just go down the list of the institutions and then we can come back and hit them up. Right. I'm looking at religion. I'm looking at education. I'm looking at culture, information, property, economy, health, environment, security, and defense. So let's start with, let's start with, with religion. If you will recall, when COVID hit, you could not attend church in, in public. Right. You, and, and they were arresting people even when they were going outside and, and, uh, and spacing out, doing the, doing the social distancing and all that kind of stuff, they were still being harassed. Right. What what did not what did not change? What or what was not affected? You you left the you, you left the the uh, liquor stores open. Yep. Uh, you you left uh, nightclubs open. And Planned Parenthood was left open. Planned, the Planned, the Planned pot Parenthood stores were left open. Pot stores exactly. So so what you end up with is you are shutting down certain things or you're at least intimidating certain groups uh, so that you can, you can get away from the idea that this country is based on. And that is that we are a Christian Judeo-Christian nation, Judeo-Christian right. ethics. And, and what that means is that we seek one truth. You know, the truth is based on God. God is who establishes an, an objective truth. What you want is to establish the state as the purveyor of truth, where the, the state determines what truth is. And so if, you, if you're going to be able to achieve that, you have to be able to change what objective truth is, which is governed by the church, or at least it's, the, the church dictates what that is and says, here's, here's a rule book. Uh, because we're a Christian nation, that nothing is forced on you. And, and if you follow the teachings of, of Jesus Christ, you didn't force anything on anybody. Right. But he was saying, "This is these are the rules that you should follow, and that's what we have followed for you know since the creation of this country." Let now, what the government wants to do is the current government is move things in a direction where it will tell you what you know what truth is. So truth is really at the heart of this whole issue of right. the and, attack and, on religion. And what do they want to do? Is they want to push God out of the picture because the only entity that you should have faith in, according to their structure, their belief, is the government. That's the that's only right. one that you should have faith in. Correct. So, so that's, or at least move it in that direction, um, because this is a process. So the next is education. You look at education, and, and we, in the United States, the system was set up to teach you how to think. Now we're looking at, we want you to, we'll tell you what to think. So what to think is opposed to how to think. And why is that? Because if you teach people how to think, Education is about seeking truth. Right. If you're taught how to think, it makes it much more easier to indoctrinate people. Chavez changed the curriculum so that it followed the, the dogma of the government. What they saw is truth. Right. They changed history. They changed all sorts of they 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 changed the the, the curricula in, in, in all these schools. So the same thing is happening in the United States. You've got a set curriculum that has been going on for a long time. A lot of these people that. Uh, 
where the flower children of the 60s and 70s have now become school administrators. Yeah. And they're, they're talking, a lot of these people are. Yeah. And so they're looking at how do we indoctrinate our children? Give one example is the sexualization of children. Why is sexualization something that they emphasize? Because now you're, you're trying to convince people that biologically there's more sexes than there are. They, they, you can't say sex because sex is specific and there's male and female. So you go with gender. Yep. And what that does with, with, the, with, with the whole gender movement, you can pretty much come up with whatever you want it to be. And so because of this gender issue, you start teaching that in schools and you do it in some cases against the knowledge of parents. Parents don't know anything about right. this. And what that does is it opens a door for sexualizing children. Think about well, a lot of that. Let, let me jump back here. I mean, talking about the education issue, we've got the, you know, you're from Virginia. Um, yes. The deal with Yunkin and what happened with McCullough and what he said and what they, what several people said. That's why McCullough lost that election is because he said the parents don't have any right to know what's going on. He said that he left that in the hands of the teachers unions and the right. school boards, that they were the experts. And uh, uh, sorry, that's not the way it works. Well, um, and it, to jump back in again, you know, one of the things that, and, and please comment on this, one of the things that I don't know if you've been to school here recently, at, you know, elementary uh, education, um, my my oldest son, my youngest son, rather, is uh, he's 27 now. Years ago, I went to go to, to class with him, and I didn't think anything about it at the time. Um, but now looking back on it, seeing how this is, our education is, our education system has been transformed so much since we were educated, is that we went to lunch, and after sitting in class with him and watching how they're, you know, they have to be quiet in class. There's no movement. The lights are out. And then the teacher will give them their, their tasks and so on. And then they got to go to lunch and they were quiet the entire time. And then even at lunch, they had to be quiet with the lights out, except for the last five minutes of lunch for them eating. And it was this control, control, control all the time. Is, is that part of what you see in addition to this gendering um, and, and the sexualization of our kids, this constant control of the state will tell you when to speak and when you can talk. Do you, do you see all of that part of it or am I being too, too critical or too hypercritical of it? And I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I don't have any personal experience in this because in 2002, my wife said, I'm going to homeschool the kids. And she did. So Great I, have choice. Five, <laughs> I, have, I have five kids. My oldest was in the fourth grade and uh, the, the first two, had a slight smidgen of public education, but it wasn't here. It was in Venezuela and it was in Chile. And so they never got an opportunity to be under a U.S. school system. And then my wife took over from there and my last three never went to school. They and they, were, they and were, your kids have turned out pretty well. They've, they've got pretty good jobs, right? I mean, I pretty think educated. Some, you know, one graduate, the oldest graduated from the University of Virginia. The other one graduated from George Mason. The next one uh, went through a, through a tech school. Uh, the fourth went to... Oberlin Conservatory, not the college. And then the, the fourth is now involved in politics at a very early age, and he loves what he's doing. So I, I think they've done fine. Um, my, I, I trust my wife in, in, in the education of my children. So I, one of the things that we focus on is how to think. Right. And so I don't want to go into all the homeschooling aspects of it. Right. My feeling is if, you, if you're not satisfied with the way schools are going, pull them out. Yep. Now, yep. I know it's, that it's you more can't do that with people. everybody. Well, it's, it's more important for people to learn how to think than be Correct. told what to think. Now, now, just so that I don't, I don't come across uh, as, as somebody who's insensitive to the, to the plight of those that have to go to work. Right. 
then if they have, if you have to go to work, if you have to send them to school, then get involved in schools exactly. and make sure that you start telling the school board, this is, this is the way it's going to go. The more of us that do that, the right. more of us that are forceful, the more of us that, that fight back, especially law-abiding citizens, yep. the quicker people understand the people are getting frustrated and angry and we need to change course. So education is one of those areas that is huge because that shapes and forms uh, the way that, that people are going to think. If we allow this to continue, especially the sexualization aspect of it, all you got to do is think about this. If you have a child engage in sexual intercourse at a very early age, what impact does that have on the person uh, for the rest of his life yep. or her life? Right. I would argue it's not a positive thing. When you start talking about chemically and physically altering the sex of a child, what are the impacts to health? If yeah. you start cutting and pasting on something that was originally there, how are you going to improve on it? I right. would argue that you're not. I would argue that over time, what you're going to have is confused people that are going to have second thoughts. And the sad part is that what they say is that if you don't have sex affirming or, or gender affirming care, that it's going to make that person more vulnerable to suicides, except that studies are now indicating that those that Just go through with it are also vulnerable to suicides. Right. So when you start changing things uh, that are physical, you're going to have a lesser outcome. The right. functions of your body parts are not gonna be the same. And then exactly. you can get into infections and all these other things that we really need to think about. And But it's not part of the discussion because well, it's, it's not be considered bad. palatable. Sergio, that's the things that we're looking at the numbers right now. And we look at this new this new sexualization of these kids, especially those that are jumping on this bandwagon. It's 98 percent white females are going through this process. It's a fad. The girl, young girls, especially teenagers, see this as a way of being popular and of being noticed and getting recognition. Uh, and I'm not the only one to say it. There's several studies that are out now saying that this is this is happening and it's only happening in the US. We're not seeing it anywhere else on the planet where we've got this sexualization of our kids where all of a sudden everyone's trans. So this this should give us pause and we should take a step right. back and say does this really how, how is this, what impact is this having long-term? I would argue that the whole, if you, if you look at the macro view of this whole dynamic, it's to make people more susceptible, to make people more docile, right. to make people more subservient because the government then steps in and they're going to take care of you. And so this is why there's tax money that can be used to do some of these gender affirming operations, if you will, chemically castrating right. children or physically castrating children, that's not a good thing. I would argue against it. So this is, and this is all I would argue by design because you want to make people more docile. So move, moving on to the next step is all of these things are, by the way, tied together. Let's talk yeah. about culture. Culture, if you look at Hollywood, if you look at Broadway, if you look at what's shown on TV or you pick up on the internet, a lot of these themes are driven by our culture. And the, what the culture is attempting to do, those that want to alter it, modify it, change it, destroy it, is you want to go from a traditional family structure to something other than that. And, that's, mm -hmm. and, and the traditional family structure is what's created stability throughout the world. If you look at the entire world, what's, what's the common 
uh, model for a family. Now, you know, you, you've got some cultures where you can have more than one wife. You know, you have polygamy in certain parts of the world. But the standard structure is mother, father, children. And that's because when things get bad, that's who you can rely on. If you have these hybrid families, when things go bad, what happens to the children? And so you got to think about that. If you have a dispersed family, if you look at totalitarian regimes throughout history, if you look at China, if you look at Germany, where they had baby factories, when you had all these things, it was done because the government wanted greater control over the people. And so that's what we're getting away from. And again, this is also the traditional families tied to religion, faith. Uh, the United States is a Christian nation. You can argue that all you want. But at the end of the day, look at the founding fathers and look at what Judeo -Christian they, they believe. Values. And what you they know, the Judeo, correct. Yeah. So, so you're modifying the culture to carry the message of we need to move in this direction. And again, it goes to greater control over people. Which, which and, Mao did very well. I mean, that's what Mao did. He removed the old and allowed the kids to be the new bosses. He removed right. the authority of their parents over them by saying the old is no longer, ha it no longer has any value. We're seeing the exact same thing happen here. You know, you, you touched on a very important point there, and that is you use the children. I've been in, I've been in Africa. I, I was in Liberia after this last civil war. When, when Charles Taylor was running amok, he was using child soldiers. You use child soldiers because they have no conscience. You tell them to kill somebody, they'll do it. Right. And they'll run roughshod over people, and they're expendable by, by the people that are using them. And so you use them to intimidate others, but you're still in control. And that's what Mao did. He turned, he turned the young people against the parents, against the institution when he was losing power. In the process, he could kill 60 million of his own people. Yeah. So these wonderful models that we want to follow that have a communist origin, just remember, Mao killed 60 million of his own people. Stalin killed 20 million of his own people, not to include all those others that died in World War II. And so these are the models used by, by despots. And oh, by the way, people say, well, you know, you're a fascist. Let's take a look at Hitler. What right. is what was the name of his party? It was the <laughs> National Socialist Workers Party. Socialist. They were all yeah. socialists. Yep. Mussolini started out as a socialist. So all of this stuff, it's look, at the end of the day, they're all authoritarians and they all want to move toward totalitarianism if allowed. So w the first move is away from where you are to, to authoritarianism and a move toward totalitarianism. And that's that's the movement that they keep on pushing. So, so well, the issues that we've already talked about are religion, how they modify it, how you can mm -hmm. education, culture. So in your culture status, you're talking about, you know, the, the traditional family, which is what America has always been founded on. And now they want a weakened family. What's the purpose of the weakened family, though? I go back to the subservience piece. If you can, if you can tear apart the family, if you reshape the family. I'm bit, by the way, this has been written about in other places. I mean, uh, you, you look at Brave New World. Right. You basically don't have a family structure. And, and look at look at what what Mao was creating. You had collectives. They would pick who your partners were, but yeah. the state controlled those. What did Hitler want? He wanted he wanted a super class and they would have mating of the appropriate people creating yeah. children so that they could be used by the state. So again, these are these are obviously more extreme models. You know, it's a gradual process, but it's one that they follow. And this is the concern that I have. It may not ever get to that point, but you're moving in that direction. What we used to think was was not achievable, we're living through today. 
So right. the changes, be, they're gradual, but over time, this is what you have to concern yourself with. And, and, and just the idea that you have the government becoming more and more intrusive is not one that I cherish. I came to this country with nothing. And in, in one generation, here I am talking to you, not having spoken a word of English when I first arrived. Right. Well, so, so anyway. I, it, I, it's, a land, it's a land of possibility. You know, and, Correct. And here, here's what we're seeing. And I, and I think you're right. And I, I never thought that we would be here in my lifetime. When people started talking about this 10, 15 years ago, I said, oh, it's not it can't happen here. We love freedom too much. Um, but what we found is that people don't. And the, the things that are being leveraged, these institutions that you're talking about here, information is another one. And right. today, information is the number one thing being leveraged by the left. Explain that. Well, so let's take a look at information. We become an information. We're in the information age. Yeah. Look at look at big tech. Who are the big tech companies? You got Google. You got Facebook. Uh, you you got uh, Twitter. All of these massive massive companies are in the information sphere. That's what they do. And so, if the government is able to partner. With the, these huge companies, what's the definition of a fascist society? That's go. what the Germans did. I mean, they had they, they had huge companies in Germany were working in collaboration with the government. Yep. And so in the United States, you've got the information sphere working with the government. When you can when you can censor the president of the United States, as we did, yep. you're in a bad place. Now, the arguments are going to be, well, you know the. We, we have to we, we, we are we're a free market society. This is a private company. They can set the standards. But who's working with those companies to set those standards? And so. Well, we've seen here recently, I mean, Zuckerberg just said that the the Biden administration has pressured them several times. The FBI has pressured them several times. The Department of Justice has pressured them several times to censor the voices of Americans. Yes. But, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg is also the same individual who's, who forked out half a billion dollars to help out with uh, election training. Well, yeah, they didn't have to twist his arm too hard. I mean, so, so look at what he did during the elections. Now, you can argue that, that that was all legal. But when you have a tech platform that has that kind of political influence, uh, to side with one or the other, right. it's concerning. And what happens to fair and free elections when you start doing things like that? Was he distributing his funds to both sides equally? I would argue not, not by a long not. shot. No. And so, so this, is, this is why the information platforms are so important because then you can insert yourself or you can insert those that are working with the government that are messaging for the government to get a, a better uh, level of play into that space. You side with one message over another. You censor those that are against you. Let's say some, we can use some examples. I mean, you've got the, the, the whole story of Hunter Biden. Yep. That, was, that was censored. They censored the New York Post. They did not allow that message to get out before the elections. So, uh, there's a high percentage of people I'm trying to remember what the number was. I don't want to give a, a false number, but there was a significant number of people over 10% that would have voted uh, against differently had they known that information. And right. even today, it's very difficult to find anything that's negative about, you know, the, the current administration or, or well, that 
it's becoming more well, it's obvious being painted. Now. I mean, it's it's, it's but, very it's very apparent. You see what happened. I mean, Biden yesterday, you know, coming out uh, as the as the Dow is tanking, <laughs> he comes out and says, "Hey, look how good the economy's doing, everybody!" Right. So, and the media so he, comes along with it. And I I have to say, CNN did come back and say, "Listen, this is ridiculous." Well, and and if you and what happened to CNN? Why are they doing this now? Because they've I mean, lost their viewership. They've played they, the they, game so long that they they're not valued. They have no value anymore. And People again, you know, as I told you earlier, let me give you a different saying from what I explained to you <laughs> of words that I live by. Forget what I told you and just boil it down to this confuse not fact with folly. Yeah. And right now you have a president that's telling you, you know, we, I've created a gazillion jobs. No, what you did is you allowed people to go back to work. Yeah. And those are the people that are now having to pay a lot more because you generated $5 trillion of additional slush that yep. you threw and you gave to people. And those people are using that money. So you have too many dollars chasing too few goods and services. Yep. And so that's what's happening. All this, I created all these jobs. No, so you opened the doors back up so yep. people could go back to work. Yep. And remember, all of that was done selectively because the big box companies were able up. to continue to do business. Yep. The small businesses are the ones that took it uh it took the hard hit. So again, information is important. Well, and, and when, just that, Sergio, go back to that because what you're, what you, not only did those things happen, but we were not allowed to talk about them. Correct. What we were saying was that was construed as by these tech platforms as misinformation or disinformation, and we've come to find out that they were lying, we weren't lying. So again, we go back to the information cycle of being able to get real information and speak your voice is important. So let me let me just give you a personal uh, anecdote on that as far as how you control the message. When I ran for governor of Virginia, I had a, a bulk mailing service that I'm not going to mention. That's not important. That bulk mailing service said you you can't use you can't use this platform, and that's who we had we had paid the services for. Right. They said no no you can't because what you're saying in your in your campaign ad is is objectionable. And I'm going like what? Anyway, I was going to argue the point, but they said, you're not, you're an unknown. They're going to shoot you down and you're not even going to get out of the gate. So I just switched the bulk email server or the, the bulk email service. And I used somebody else and I got my message out and there was not, no, no problems with the other guy. But why is it that I, as a candidate for the United States in, in the, the Commonwealth of Virginia being censored, but I was. Yep. And yep. so this is, this is the, the state of play that we have. When you can start censoring candidates as they have, right. that is political activism that should not be allowed by these information platforms, but yet they're occurring. So this is the concern is that not only do you have the platforms, but you also have the message provided by certain people in the government. And if you look at the connection between those that have been in government and those that have gone to work for some of these um, broadcasting companies, you know, just look at the connection between those right. two. Yep. Uh, yep. So, Very so again, yeah. The information is concerning. Again, all of this is tied together. You know, the, the next thing, I, the, the next four are kind of interconnected. Property, the economy, health, and the environment. It all has to do with the generation of wealth in the United States. Right. And so when, when you look at property, there's a move toward manipulating private property. And by well, that- Klaus Schwab just said in his book, the, the Great Reset, you will own nothing and be happy. The World Economic Forum is on board with this. And think about what's happening. 
look at how they want you to live now. If you go, I live in, in Northern Virginia. If you go to Loudoun County, beautiful place, the richest county in the United States, you see where they've created these communities where you've got the living space is, is in, in high rises. They're not even high rises. They're like, you know, 10 story buildings at the, at the bottom floor. You've got all the shops. Yep. You go downstairs, you can go get whatever you want is within walking distance. And you go upstairs and you live there so you don't have to travel around. What What's up with this business about the electric cars? Think about that. You can't yep. go more than 250 miles on a charge. That means that there's a move to see if they can keep you from being as mobile as you used to be because mobility is a challenge to authority. It makes it a little bit more difficult for yep. you to 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 exercise your your right to move around and so if you can control movement you also make people more docile and if you create the conditions where you're happy in these kind of environments well you know good on you and, and a lot of power to you but what happens if you're living in flyover country yep what what if, what if you live in 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 uh, dexter new mexico where i started from <laughs> those and are wide open spaces out there you got to be able to move around <laughs> you're out of luck Exactly. And so, and, and, and you can go to Wyoming, say the same thing, you know, go to the Dakotas, uh, some of the rural communities, they're, they're spread out, they're spread apart. And, and you're going to try to do this all with electric vehicles. So again, you're, you're tying what I said, the economy, property and the environment all have to do with how you control the economy. And right. so if you can pick winners and losers, let's just go hit the environmental piece real quick. Perfect. If, if you can, if you can subsidize certain products, that is going to produce more of something. Anything you, you you subsidize, you're going to produce more of. You're going to have more 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 solar panels. You're going to have more windmills. You're going to have a lot more electric cars. But where where are the materials coming to be able to produce those electric cars? Who owns the lithium uh, deposits throughout the world? How are you going to be able to process that lithium to create that electric car? And oh, by the way. What happens when the subsidy goes away? Well, we and, see what happens. And that car doesn't go more than 250 miles. And you can see what happened in California. Yep. You, you, you've got power outages because you pulled off energy sources offline. And now you're realizing that windmills and solar panels and, and, uh, and dams, hydroelectric power, are not sufficient to be able to power the grid. Now you're having blackouts. But now they're saying, well, you guys have been so good at conserving. We've been able to save the day. But why are you even doing having to do that? Because you have nuclear power plants that can give you that type of energy. Look at what's happening in Germany. Germany is going to go through an ugly, miserable winter yep. because they've shut off the gas from from Russia. You know the and Ukrainians the way, are winning. Trump warned them, Sergio. He warned them, and they laughed at him. I mean, at the meeting, they laughed at him. They were all chuckling, and and the left, the media here in the left, was making such fun of him that that Trump was such a doofus. And that the Germans know what they're doing. How, how can Trump possibly come in here and tell them what's going to happen? How does he know what's going to happen and what happened? <laughs> exactly. And then if you look at if you look at Russia, how did the Soviet Union become so powerful? It became powerful because one of the things they were able to do is generate energy. Yep. They 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 pop nuclear power plants all over the entire country and they're able to electrify everything and be able to get things done. Cheap. They got plenty of oil. So yep. energy is cheap. You've got to be able to have access to cheap energy. Does that mean that you, you rule out wind and, and solar and, and hydro? Of course not. But you need to supplement them with something that works. Right. And fossil fuels are something that we still have. 
and that we have plenty of, we have reserves over a hundred years only in the United States alone. The more you dig, the more you find. Yep. Uh, so we killed a lot of dinosaurs back in the day to create all that oil. <laughs> Well, so, what are, what are, so 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 in this 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 four group that you have here, a property, economy, and health, um, the the uh, and environment, these four things we've seen under attack for the last 40, 50 years here in this country. Absolutely, property's a new one, but the economy, health, and environment, the those three, um, they have been doing since I was a kid, since the seventies, um, and I'm sure you remember the seventies were terrible. It was a terrible decade. Yes. You know, it was it was and we're seeing that again. So we're really we're reliving from 71, 72 through 79 until Reagan came into power in the 80s. Do you see any of this turning around? Are they going to continue to attack this or do we have a do we have a terrible two years in front of us? The short answer is yes. Can we turn it around? Yes. We're Americans. We get we can change anything we want if we just put our minds to it and we stop tolerating people telling us what to do. And I think more and more you're seeing people saying this isn't the way to go. You're starting to see a lot more resistance than you did. And, and a lot of that will depend on how many people come out to vote in this upcoming midterm election where we can turn things around. And we're going to have to do that. Otherwise, if we allow them, if, if we become so docile that we allow them to control uh, the way that we do our electoral laws and the way they can manipulate that stuff, we're sunk. I don't think well, we're there. I think there's enough anger out there that people are going to say no. And I think it's going to be, I hope, that it'll be a lot more difficult for them to manipulate the electoral process in this, these upcoming elections. I've been advocating for people to show up the day of. Don't no. do early voting. Show up and vote, vote the day of. Don't do it. No? no let, me get, let, me, let me tell you why not. Okay. They change the laws to their advantage. So whatever laws that they put in place, we need to follow the same processes. If you can go into a nursing home and sign a bunch of people up, go sign them up. You know, if it's all legal... Do it. I agree. Okay. Do, I not, do yep. not wait to the last day because if somebody comes and uses your name and then you show up at election day, say, hey, you already voted. Your ballot automatically becomes provisional. Do right. it in person and do it early. And that way it's already registered. Anybody tries to use it again, their ballot becomes provisional. And it makes it a little more difficult for right. them to be able to man manipulate the system. We have to go with the rules that are there. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to get in the ring with you and I'm going to tie both hands behind my back. <laughs> and that, that's, the, I, you know, having, <laughs> I don't think that's a good proposition. Let's put it that way. Well, what so, the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I'm just saying, you, you, you've got to be able to play the rules by the, I agree. By the I established agree. rules. And, and the, the established rules are to favor one party. So right. if the rules are as they are, then let's follow those same rules ourselves. And so whatever freedoms you have to vote, let's use them to our advantage. Let's get people cognizant of what's going on and let's do the early voting. Let's get as many people as possible. Let's round up more. You know, if you, you can tell 10 people that you can ask, hey, are you going to vote? And if they say no, it's enough. Come on, let's go. Yeah. Yep. I'll, I'll pick well, you that, up. That's, I'll pick that's, I guess th that's what I've been advocating for is for people to get involved. There, there's this been a year military guy. You, you know what threat assessment is. And there's this mentality in the country. <laughs> it's funny. I keep hearing I, hear, I keep hearing about civil war. I only hear about it from the left. We're not talking about it. We don't no. want it. No. Right. So absolutely not. So explain to people and this I've, I've been trying to get this through to people's heads. They go, well, you know, there's a, there's a group that says we'll go to D.C. and we'll take power over. Uh, Sergio, can, can can people 
can can they take over the country by holding DC? No, I mean no. We, we're we're we're, compl- we're 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 not a banana republic. No, we're there's a movement to make us more that way, but we're not there yet. There's right. way too many people that go oh, really. And well, here's the other thing. I've tried to tell people that you know they, they look they look at the revolution and they go well look what happened then I go well yeah but you only had one to five what was it three to five million people in the country at that time total and if you if you held five cities you held the entire nation you can't hold Florida with five cities so this mentality that we're going to do it through kinetic action doesn't make any sense to me it's it has to be through the ballot box and getting involved politically especially at the local level we, do you agree? we have to we, we have to change it through the ballot box right because the alternative the alternative is bad very yeah. very bad and you've lived through and that you've seen that I've, I've seen it all over the place now is it impossible ever that that could happen we had a civil war right before the civil war people never thought that we'd get to that point we did and so civil wars occur in countries and they they take different shapes and sizes and and you know that they're not a neat little north south kind of division either the wars that are really messy and ugly and sloppy are the ones that are not that way. And so you don't want to get to that point. And the reason that we're talking about this and bringing this up is because um, it's important to look at what Sergio has done here is is making this graph is he's showing what they're doing currently. And we've been the the frog in the, the, the pot of water. The heat has turned up. We're now starting to feel the heat. Uh, But this graph, I think really explains, opens people's eyes to the difference of what's going on and where we end up at in the economy. We, we've been a free market economy. They want to go to a state controlled economy. If they correct. go to state control, they control us, correct? It's all about control. Correct. If we go to private health versus public, if they control the health, they control us. So, so you just hit on something really important on health. Think about this. During COVID, if you didn't get the shot, you weren't going to work. Right. So now you control somebody's livelihood. And what's going to stop the government when they become one care provider or one one source provider uh, that says, okay, uh, you didn't take this shot or you didn't take that shot or you didn't follow this protocol and we're going to withhold medical care from you. Where are you going to go? And so again, we think you're obese and we're going to hold your food coupons from you. Or it's about whatever. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's, that's extreme. That's horrible. That would never happen. Um, I don't know. Bloomberg did it in New York. Think Bloomberg did it. He said you couldn't you couldn't get the large sodas. You had to get people were getting two mediums instead of a large because of the stupid rule. Well, no, let's be let's be a little bit more uh, up to date. If you didn't have the COVID shot, you got fired. Look yep. at the look at how many pilots were laid off. How many yep. nurses were laid off? People that have been in the thick of the COVID crisis were now being laid off. Yep. That's a reality that happened. And it, again, it goes back to government control now. The health piece of it is if you take it one step further, what happens if the government doesn't like what you're doing? Greater control. You know, what happens if you don't get an electric car? Well, I'll just disconnect you. Yep. So these are the kinds of things that I'm saying. It's a gradual process, and it's one that encompasses different agencies, different institutions, and they all commingle. And in certain cases, depending on what the issue is, it may affect health, it may affect religion, it may affect information. All of these things are connected together. Um, I, I had a, I went to see a doctor the other day and, and everybody's still wearing masks. Right. And, I, and I asked the doctor, I, 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 I don't keep this nameless. I asked 
this individual, why, why are we wearing masks? You, I go outside, nobody else is wearing masks. Well, that's what the CDC protocol is. And I said, what do you think as a medical professional? Right. And, and he says, well, I, I'm, I'm not free to offer my opinion. Right. right. I can't give because, you because, because he knows it's ridiculous. Yep. And so, yep. and so this is the, this is how you condition people because you want to make them more docile. Stop right. asking the question. We are the authority and you follow the dictates of what we say now. So, so all of this stuff is, it, it ties to who we are as, first of all, who we are as a people, you know, how do you earn your living and, and what role do you have to play within the way you're governed? And the more control the government has, the more they're going to tell you how it goes. And so down at the bottom, you know, the, the, the two last institutions, look at security. Yeah. If you look at if you look at the world, there are many countries where you have one security service. For example, I'll give you some examples of places where I've been in Venezuela. They had the National Guard and they had the National Police. And they that, those are the two huge institutions that govern public safety. Right. In Chile, you had the Carabineros, which is basically a nationalized police. It's a uniform police. It's a small group of people. They're very efficient. They do their thing. So you've got an institution that is governed through the executive, it's very easy to manage because it's all under one umbrella. What happens if you put somebody in uh, that's, a, that's an authoritarian? Now all of a sudden you have the, the power of the police under one, under one person. In the United States, what do we have? We have county cops, we have city cops, we have state cops, we have federal cops. Right. And they're all dispersed. They're all, they're, they're, nobody is under one umbrella. That's part of the design of the United States because we are a federal republic. We have states' rights. The states have responsibility for taking care of their own security immediately. And right. so that's the way, that's just the nature of who we are as a people. You know, the Second Amendment is something that, that, is, that, is, that is traditionally American. There's a few other countries that have a Second Amendment. And again, this is just the nature of who the United States is and why we are the country that we are. The last piece is uh, defense. This is one that comes near and dear to my heart because I love, right. I love the 30 years I spent in the Army. It was the institution that taught me, formed me, shaped me, and, and gave me a, an understanding of the world. You do not want to politicize your military. That is not a good, that's not a good idea. And is this one so, of the scariest ones on this list to you? Of everything that's going on currently, is this one of the scariest things, most concerning? Let me let me capture it this way. I think if we have a weak military or we have a military that's not ready for combat, that's a problem. Then we are weakened because nothing impoverishes a nation more than being attacked by another nation state and 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 having it uh, in the situation that Ukraine is now. Imagine the damage economically, socially, you name the you, you name the institution in Ukraine and what is it going to cost to recuperate all of that right so you know all of a sudden you're you know you're in the, the maslow's hierarchy of needs food <laughs> lodging that's what you worry about yeah. all this other stuff becomes superfluous right. if you allow a nation state to be weakened that's what you end up with and the responsibility that the united states has taken upon itself is so tremendous and so impactful in world security that we are the indispensable nation for example if you look at the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Navy ensures that you have free trade throughout the entire globe. They're, the the United States Navy is the one that 
creates the conditions whereby you have maritime law that people have to abide by. And because we've been benign in the way that we execute our duties, we don't do crazy stuff. We keep the world's maritime commerce safe. If you end up having to compete with another nation state and they decide we don't want you coming in here, now you have a competition. So what happens to trade? If you have a, a foreign competitor saying, uh, we don't want you to come through here. No, by the way, we're going to take this ship from you. Right. I mean, that, that's, if you look oh, at the world. A, if, Sergio, we didn't have a huge presence on the East coast of Africa. And what we, what, what problem came, you know, came out of that. You, exactly. you saw that you saw the, the pirates, you know, coming out and, and taking these ships over. And so what you want to do is you also want to create a coalition of partners Yep. because it's, it's the, 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 the partnerships are important because the partnerships are good at helping other nations. <laughs> well, Bless me. you. you. You have a network of countries that are of like mind that throw in and assist in making sure that we have this, this global inter- enterprise that is friendly to all. It, and, it, but if you get into a conflict and that other nation state wants to bump you off as the, the top country in the world, then you're going to have some challenges in that direction. The more that we weaken our military, uh, the worse it is for the entire world. And so I would argue that you, if, if you do not improve readiness, you are not doing anything good for your, for your country. If you start looking at all of this gender stuff, how does gender improve readiness? How does all this, this uh, awareness of gender due to improve readiness. Well, I can guarantee you as the bullets are whizzing past, the last thing that you're going to be worried about is gender identity. Exactly. And, and oh, by the way, uh, on this issue of global warming, how does the military impact global warming? It is, okay. Uh, Who cares? We, their, their job is not to be concerned about the environment at the time that they're doing their job. Well, correct. Look, I, I believe in, in being in, in conserving. I believe in all of that kind of stuff. But if you start becoming so focused on things that are superfluous to the mission of exactly. national defense, yep. you are not doing point. anything good to strengthen national security. So national security should be apolitical. There's a gentleman by the name of Samuel Huntington who wrote a book called The Soldier in the State. And in it, he describes different models and he defines what the U.S. model or he describes what the U.S. model is like. I'd like to keep it that way. Let's focus on defense. Let's focus on security. Let's keep our military apolitical. Do not get them involved in politics. When you start talking about all of these ideas that are now being bandied about, such as white rage and all this other stuff, you're dividing our society. The, the army that I was in was green. I was green. Yep. Uh, my buddies were, we, we were all green. <laughs> we're like, yep. I'm at the front. Yep. So, so let's keep it that way. Um, so, so these are the kinds of things that I think if you start breaking away from the way that the United States was originally designed and you start moving toward giving the state more authority, you create an authoritarian state. And ultimately, it can get to a totalitarian state. I think that the nature of the United States and who we are will not allow it to get that far. But I think that we, we're going to move the needle more to the direction of an authoritarian state, which is very very concerning. And this is the reason I put this slide together is because I saw this happening in our country and I came here with nothing. 
I came here with uh, an idea of what the United States was that I didn't even know when I started. You know, right. as I started going through school, I go like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And the more I learned, the more I understood, the more I went through my my assimilation process, I started from being 100% Mexican when I arrived <laughs> to becoming fully 100% American. Yep. And the beauty of this country is that you don't have to negate the fact that you had an origin other than America. Nope. nope. No, no other country in the world. Well, and that's that's what I think that people don't understand is that America, America really is an idea. It, it, it's not it's not a nationality. It's not a race. It's not gender. It's an idea of freedom. And what we've seen is that uh, the freedom of our country uh, and the freedoms that we've fought for for years and, and become too used to and maybe taking for granted are under attack by a group of people who want to they want totalitarian rule. They don't want yes. us. They don't want us having a voice. And so the slide that you've created here goes through and explains all of that and puts it very, I think, succinctly because you can see it for what it is. With that being said, and when you and I, I've talked about it. Uh, the last time we talked, I told you my opinion that I don't think that we're going to have elections in the form that we've seen um, in the nation. I think that we're going to have something that comes up. Biden's speech last week doesn't give me any hope that that's going to, to change. Um, again, based on what we've seen, you have a different opinion. You believe that the elections will go through and be what they are. Um, have you changed your mind? Has Biden's speech changed that for you or anything? No, what my mind hasn't been changed. I I think the the lunacy of you know President Biden's speech was it was theatrical, right? Because at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is 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 deflect from the things that are happening. Why are all prices going up? People are concerned about prices going up. People are concerned about going out into the street and feeling safe. People are concerned about the number of people that are coming across that border that we have no idea who they are. People are concerned about the fact that there's a lot of money being made and those people coming across the borders because the cartels don't just let you happily come across Mexico and into the United States without collecting a fare. And so you're creating all of these circumstances that people are seeing and they see past some of these these idiotic things. Not everybody. You know, there's there's the old saying about you can fool some of the people some of the time and so on. And so <clears throat> that's that's what's happening. But I think that elections will occur. I think that there's going to be a significant amount of information getting out there where people are going to make an informed decision. Even if they start voting in Virginia like in a week, uh, we're still going to see a lot of changes. I mean, look at how many how many of the candidates right now on the on on the other side are refusing to do debates. They're refusing <laughs> to do debates because if you ask them about the issues, they have nothing to run right. on. Right. And if you look at the way that they vote, they're lemmings. They right. all follow the leader. They all jump off a cliff if that's what the leader tells them to do. And if our candidates are able to point that out effectively, I think we'll be in good shape. I mean, when on earth have we had an election like the one taking place in Pennsylvania where you have a candidate who can't even articulate a thought? Right. And then if you if you well, point it was called that the out, 2020 election with Joe Biden. <laughs> well, well, but 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 see, but but, it, but now they've gotten to the point where they know that they've been able to manipulate things so that they can even put, you know, uh, El Cid after he's killed riding on a horse. Yep. Um, he, he gives the appearance, but you listen to you you listen to this gentleman. I don't. I'm not saying that he's killed and he's any of that kind of stuff. Right. But if you don't have 
the mental faculties to execute the job that you're about to take, such as the Senate, which impacts all Americans, yep. I think you need to have a harder look. And this guy can't even articulate a thought. And if you point it out, you're being mean. Because right, exactly. How, how can you talk about my health? Well, first of all, yep. you should have enough cognition to know that if you're not up for the job, then don't take it on. Yep. Because but it's that it's their person. It's their it's their ego. It, it's their pride. He, he's not going to step down and he doesn't have any other options. Fetterman has no other options. He, he's one of these guys that that has reached the peak. And now that he's reached the peak, he's not capable of doing it. And so he's, he's going to lose. There's no way. There's no way that the American people shouldn't look at this and go, this is politics at its worst. Well, I asked my <clears throat> my brothers and sisters in, in Pennsylvania to take a hard look at this guy. And you have to ask yourself, how is it that a guy who's a mayor of a town that's fallen apart, uh, the same mayor who holds up a, a, a black jogger who's running in January, and he says, well, he had his face covered. Well, hell, I've run in that kind of weather. Yep. <laughs> you cover your face because you're going to end up breathing in a chunk mm -hmm. of ice. I, yep. And so... And yet there he is putting, you know, pointing a, pointing a gun at this guy. And then the cop shows up and then they're lollygagging about, you know, what was he doing? And he explains that he was running and he makes it clear that he wasn't doing anything wrong. And, right. and so this is the same guy that is Mr. Love and Peace. Let's right. just let one third of the prisoners out of Pennsylvania jails. Yep. And you're arresting somebody because on a whim you thought that I don't know what he thought. Uh, so where is all of this? And again, I go back to information. It's difficult to find this information yep. unless you really dig. Yep. And sometimes as soon as you find it, it disappears. So it's important that we stay engaged. It's important that we remember what this country was founded on. And it's founded on citizens that aren't going to just take it sitting down. And they say, no, you know, in our churches, we need to say, stop this. Right. This is wrong. Yep. Yep. We need to be more vocal. And we and, you know, the reason that a lot of these restrictions were placed on us is because we didn't stand up and say we've had it enough. Exactly. Stop. Well, that's what I went after churches initially. And, and I said churches, I, I went to pastors. And I said, if you do not stand up, they're going to keep you closed as long as they can. Exactly. Well, we don't want to cause a problem. Well, that's kind of your job. <laughs> well, again, your job is and, to be the voice of reason. And the threat that was made to churches was you'll lose your tax exempt status. Yeah. So, so these are the kinds of things that concern me. Again, I put that chart together to generate dialogue, to have people look at it and see if it makes sense. It's a framework so that you understand the, the broader picture, the bigger picture. I've seen this repeatedly. Right. I've studied this. This is why I put it together. And this is the reason that I ran for governor because I, I was frustrated. I kept calling a friend of mine. I said, "Hey, look, this is crazy. You, we can't, we can't allow this. You know, talk to people, see what we, we can do." Right. And the, you know, I and and eventually said, "Well, you're going to have to be the voice piece." And it, yeah. and and I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to stand up and be counted, I'll stand up and be counted. Well, that's what I I tell people all the time is that if you can't find the leader that you 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 can get behind, become that leader, become right. the person that steps forward. And and Sergio, leaders are people who do what they're going to do regardless of what everybody else does. 
Exactly. And it's the followers that follow in and go, that person's doing what I don't have either the time or the gumption or, or the cojones to do. I'm going to now follow them. Carrie Lake, I think, is right now is a great example in Arizona. I think that what she's done, her class and the way that she comes across, she, she, she sells the message very well. And it's easier for her to create followers because she knows where she's going. She has a mission and she knows how to get there. And I think that that's what people are looking for right now. Well, I think what you have to look at is what was our country founded on? What principles, what ideals, what was it that we signed up for? Right. And it's worked. Yep. Why do you want to destroy something that works? Because they always talk about good intentions. The path to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> because it's not about good intentions. It's about results. And the right. questions that every candidate in our slate needs to be asking, every Republican needs to be asking, what are the results of this individual's actions? Because if you, if you just put it to results, you're going to eliminate a lot of the chatter because people right. say, give me those results, quantify them. What did you achieve? Yep. Well, and Sergio, you, I was going to say is, 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 is that you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and we, we're coming up on uh, an hour and a half that we've been talking here, and I know you've got to get going. Um, what would you say in closing to the American people um, that are they're looking for answers? They're looking. Hello. Oops. Hello. Hello. Oh. Okay. You're you're breaking up. Oh. Yep. We'll keep it going here. That is the okay. first time that's happened today. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> wow. Okay, no okay. So, okay. So let me, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, okay. So, so in closing, um, first of all, you know, well, first of all, thanks for joining me again today. This has been a great conversation. I always love talking to you. Um, what can people do next besides just getting involved? What can people do next um, in spreading this information that we're talking about today, is it, is it important that they start talking to their neighbors and expanding on these issues and start being more vocal about it? What, what can people do? Yes. So a friend of mine told me that I like your slide, but we don't want it to be about admiring the problem. This is the problem. The solution <laughs> is right. we have to get involved. Everybody has to get involved. You got to get out of your comfort zone. You've yep. got to attack each one of these actions that I've described by each of the institutions. The ones that affect you, be vocal, say no. In the case of those that can afford to have their children out of school, if you want to make an impact on schools, gather like-minded individuals, make that a critical mass and say, we're pulling our kids out. We're right. not going to do that anymore. Yep. If you pull out all the kids all at once and say, we're not, we're not playing that game anymore, you'll get somebody's attention. If, if you want, pull them out and homeschool them if you can. But I think if you do in mass, just as an example there, right. when you look at elections, get involved, be an election official, not just an election observer, or be an election observer if that's all you can do. Be available, be right. there to ensure that there's scrutiny on the process and on the system. And more of us have to come out and we have to do this as individual citizens. If we can do that, I think we can turn the tide. In the case of the military, the military has to stay apolitical. Those of us that are out of the military say, don't do this to our military. Right. Talk to our politicians, say, we can't have that. Whenever we get ourselves involved in foreign entanglements, the first question we should ask is, what 
critical U.S. interests are involved in this process. We don't need to go into another Afghanistan and Iraq. What did we get out of 20 years of misery that we put our American citizens through? Our best, the finest. How can you look an individual whose son or daughter was killed in Afghanistan and Iraq and say it was because we were defending freedom or whatever reason you want to give them? What reason are you going to give them? What was their life worth? Why were they fighting? Those are the kinds of things that we have to start asking on, on, on the issue of public safety. We need to have communities say enough is enough. Knock it off with the defunding the police. The people that get most affected by that are those that are in, a, in the least. Uh, they're, they're probably in the worst place to be able to defend themselves. They don't have the ability to do so. So people end up being cooped up in their homes because the gangbangers are ruling the streets. And they're, so they're, they're the prisoners of their own communities. That's exactly right. And these knuckleheads that end up going in uh, as district attorneys and are allowing the criminals out of jail, vote them out. We have to be more vocal about that. I agree. And, and the other thing is we are a colorless society, or we used to be. Now yep. what you want is you want to, equity means let's favor one group over another. That's ridiculous. I my, my Mexican origin has nothing to do with me being an American. We are, have to be unhyphenated Americans. We are yep, Americans. We are Americans that, are, that abide by the law or we're not. Yep. And so let's be Americans that abide by the law, that follow the traditions that made this country great. And we have to get involved. The, the call to arms is get involved. I agree. I agree. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. So, so well said. Today, our guest has been Sergio De La Pena. My name is Kramer. This is the Kramer Says Podcast. We will be back tomorrow or as soon as we can.